Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. This week I'm joined by Jamie Ma, who is a certified sommelier. Uh, he's an editor, a journalist, a podcast host, a bartender, too, as well, at the Fairmont Pacific Rim Lounge uh, inside their hotel there up in Vancouver. So he's somebody that I've been following for a while, um, not because necessarily he's a sommelier, which is kind of something that I learned after the fact um, before he came on the podcast. But he's somebody I've been following because of his podcast, uh, which is called Track and Food. You can find it pretty much on all the platforms, Apple, Spotify, all that stuff. But he mainly focuses on Vancouver and different restaurants in Vancouver and chefs and and that. And they have some other stuff that they do with, um, you know, he's got mid-range. And then uh, the whole podcast is sponsored by Scout Magazine, which he also contributes to as well. So he does a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, I was doing some research way back when first starting the website on Brandon uh, Grossuti, who is the owner of Pigeon. And I was doing some research on Pigeon, which is one of my favorite restaurants, and came across a podcast that they had, and and they had him on. And that was kind of, I was like, oh, this is a really good podcast. It's really cool. You know, this is something, because there's not a whole lot of, you know, great food podcasts out there. You know, there's a handful of them, but but nothing at a super high level that kind of I was looking for. You know, you have, a, like I said, a handful of others, you know, different cities and stuff like that. But, and I just kind of, it was awesome to hear about different stuff going on in Vancouver and and all that stuff. And so when I was kind of, you know, running through the guest list and everything, I was like, it'd be cool if, you know, I could have a fellow kind of podcaster on and reached out to him. And he was like, yeah, sure. Happy to do it. And, and uh, we were able to have kind of a, a lengthy conversation about how he kind of got into the wine industry and how he got into journalism and, and bartending and the effects of COVID on Vancouver and been in Winnipeg and Toronto and, and all this different stuff. So he's got quite the, quite the journey. And it's just, it's a really cool conversation. It's really fun to talk to somebody who's, you know, kind of doing the same thing and doing podcasts. I mean, he's doing it at a completely different level than what what I'm doing. But, you know, uh, it's definitely cool to see somebody who's kind of almost like paved the way, uh, essentially, and has had success doing, you know, something that they love to do. And, you know, he still does the bartending and everything. And he gets into the, you know, going through kind of the, the SOM courses and doing um, the wine education instead of doing, you know, stuff through master uh, the Court of Master Sommeliers and everything like that. So it's a really cool podcast. Uh, you can find him on all social media. I mean, it's at Grandma is his Instagram handle, but you can find at Track and Food on Instagram too, Midrange and Scout Magazine. It's also all up on uh, the website, the Spoon Mob website too as well. If you go to the Sommelier section, uh, he's got a little profile there so you can find all his contact info. If you want to listen to the podcast, check that out or, or what what have you. Check out uh, the different stuff that they're writing about going on in Vancouver and everything. So really different style of podcast just because it's somebody who's so diverse and doing all these different things, but definitely a cool conversation. Really awesome to have them on and, you know, stay in touch. And hopefully whenever I get back out to Vancouver, I can, you know, meet up with some of these people in person that, you know, have been so generous with their time to, to come on the podcast. But that's it for my intro. So here is my interview with Jamie Ma, certified sommelier at the Fairmont Pacific Rim Hotel Lounge and co-host of the Track and Food podcast. Again, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. I mean, you know, it's kind of amazing sometimes when you're able to get people to come on. You just, I don't know, it's always a surprise, you know, when people are like, yeah, I'll do it or whatever. I first found out about you really from your podcast, Track and Food. Uh, I think I was doing some research on Brandon Grissetti over at Pigeon, 
who might actually be coming on the podcast in a couple of weeks, but, but I found your podcast and I was like, oh, wow, this is actually, this is a food podcast I want to listen to. Cause there's, there's not a whole lot of food podcasts, but there's just some that are just not good that are out there too, as well, like with anything. And it's, you know, all personal preference, but I've been listening to you guys. I know you haven't been putting out as many episodes recently because of COVID, but but since probably, I don't know, definitely over a year, probably getting close to like two years, you know, and you guys do a lot of stuff with people in Vancouver. And, and I had a great experience visiting Vancouver and desperately want to want to go back and everything like that. So yeah, I was just glad you can can do the podcast and kind of go through, you know, your experience with getting into the food industry. You do a lot of stuff. Uh, you're a podcast host, editor, run a website too as well, a bartender, a certified sommelier. Did I miss anything? I think I got five things. No, 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 no. You did. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I try to have many heads, I guess, if you could say, or many hats that I try to wear. But uh, I'm flattered that you uh, listen to our podcast. Thank you for having me on, by the way. I've been working in the hospitality sphere since I was 16. Um, I got into it at a very young age. My mom was like, you eat too much and I can't afford you, so get a job. So she's like, go find some work and bring in some money so you can actually you know, help and stuff like that. So I got a job at McDonald's when I was 16. And um, worked there for four years through high school and my early part of my university career, which was kind of, you know, it was a great way. I was very shy growing up and um, I was very kind of introverted. Um, and I think working in an environment like that where it was very structured, but also you're working with a lot of people that are similar, similar age group and uh, it's very fast paced. And, you know, I, I'm not a big fan sometimes of the fast food sphere. And if anybody who's listening to my work probably understands that. I mean, there's a lot of things that I don't like about it. But working in that environment, it really it really opened me up to kind of dealing with people and engaging with others and working with a large group, a large team. So and that was something I really was drawn to. Um, I definitely would say I'm a people person. I like, I like to communicate and talk and um, get to know people. And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy most about the hospitality industry is it's very... It's a very engaging industry. Um, I always say that we are the most important industry in, in outside of like anything that, outside of anything that's like health related, mostly because we are the industry that bridges the gap of people connecting with each other. And uh, I think we've all been able to notice how uh, how important that has become and how how difficult it's been with uh, COVID and how much that's been taken away. And I think we started to realize how important we play uh, the role that we play in our society. And I, I always like to say that you know if you go traveling. And you land in whatever city or whatever country you land in. What's the first thing most people think of doing? You know, where am I going to eat? Where am I going to go for drinks and stuff like this? You know, we are we are the thing that people always gravitate towards. So it's uh, it's something that I've taken as a lifelong passion, and I love working in the industry and you know becoming a sommelier and, and bartender, and then obviously communicating and working in journalism, and doing stuff like this. Um, yeah, it's just another facet of being a part of the industry in a different way. So. Um, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a nice ride so far, and uh, hopefully it'll continue. When you got started in in restaurants, your first job was it just a fast food like flipping burgers, or were you just a dishwasher, or how'd you how'd you get started? Yeah, so I mean McDonald's, I was just basically just I started in the front and kind of just dealt with people, and it was like I was cashier, and then I moved into drive-through. Funny thing about that was, um, and this is one thing I was say to any young prospective high school boy when you have a raging hormones. Uh, there's two options they give you when you work at McDonald's. It's uh, you can either go in the grill area where generally all the guys go, or you can go in the drive-through where they generally put all the girls. And I know that sounds very sexist, but that's how it was back in 1996 when I was there. And um, I chose the drive-through because I was like, well, if I'm going to go anywhere, I'm going to go be where all the girls are. So, and that's I will say that 
that uh, that definitely helped me in learning to develop some uh, picking up skills. So I, I recommend that to any any young gentleman out there. Uh, but then afterwards, I worked at Earl's. I worked at Earl's. I got a job at Earl's when I was twenty one, and uh, yeah, that was just working as a server. And um, I, I, I'd taken a break from school, and I just wanted to kind of make a little bit of money. And again. I was gravitated towards the the kind of the energy of working with you know a lot of people and a lot of people in your age and it's fun and you know you make some money have drinks and stuff like this. Well, ironically, I didn't start drinking until I was twenty four, so alcohol was never a thing for me. But uh, until at least until that point. But yeah, no, just got into a kind of in the front of house mindset. I worked in back of house really only with McDonald's. I, ever since then, I've pretty much been fully front of house. Now that all started. You're originally from Saskatoon, right? I am, yeah. I'm from Saskatoon, uh, born and raised there until I was about 23. And then I moved to Toronto and I lived in Toronto for three years and uh, worked at some pretty cool spaces there. And then moved back to Saskatoon for a couple of years and ran a really, a really nice high-end sushi bar. Um, and then I moved to Toronto, moved to Vancouver in 2009. So I've been out here since for the last 12 years. Do you go back to, like, I've never been to Saskatoon. Do you go back very often? What's, what's like the food culinary scene in Saskatoon like? Uh, I go, I do go back often. I mean, my whole family is still there. My mother, my brothers and sisters are still, my best friend still lives there. So I try to, I mean, obviously, unfortunately, I've been back since uh, before COVID. So it's been a while since I've been back, but uh, I try to go back two or three times a year to see family um, and stuff like that. But yeah, Sestine's, Sestine's got an interesting uh, culinary sphere. It's, it's for the longest time, it was just kind of the big chains and it was just kind of like a hodgepodge of just whatever places. But um over the last 10 years or so, there's been kind of a young resurgence of young blood and young people who are trying to do some really cool place, cool stuff out there. Uh, my friends my friends who ran a really high-end sushi restaurant when I worked there, Megan and Todd, they ran a place, place called Sushiro, um, which was around for like 18 years. And it, it basically puts kind of that type of cuisine on the map in the city. And um, I have other friends who are doing really cool stuff out there. My brother actually runs a really good uh, video game bar out there, which is really fun, called Bartari. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's, it's still a small city. I mean, it's only 300,000 people. It's a university town. Um, still kind of has that small vibe to it, but it's, it's definitely a very beautiful city and it's very, you know, there's for the people that are doing stuff um there's there's some really cool creative stuff out there so it's 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 really nice to see that it's kind of evolving but you know it's 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 where vancouver was maybe 15 years ago maybe 10 years ago so they're still a little bit behind you know it, but they're they're getting there and but i mean it's just a population thing right so that's um but yeah no there's a lot of great people there who you know really do care about good dining and good quality so um there was moments where i considered moving home and opening a restaurant there but if you've never been to the prairies the winters are horrendous so i don't i uh, it's always been something that's kept me away so <laughs> i really enjoy the weather here in vancouver so uh, sorry mom i'm not coming home i've been to calgary and it was absurdly cold uh and it wasn't supposed to be i think when we went there mainly just we went there for like a couple of days and then we went to banff but it was like they're like oh yeah like yesterday it was 80 degrees and we're like, well, it's 30 today and I have to go buy a winter coat because I didn't bring one. It's cold. I mean, like, yeah, I'll get off, I'll get off the plane sometimes in, in Saskatoon and, you know, it'll be like minus 47. And I'm like, Ugh, fuck, why do I come to the city so much? But I love you. Mom. I'm excited to see you. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, that, that is what it is. It, it kind of gives you, uh, you know, people that come from the prairies, uh, you know, and you develop a thick skin and you can handle most things. If you can grow up there, you can grow up anywhere. It's kind of my motto, but people there are lovely. It's a very lovely place. So you go to school and everything, and then you started bartending at Earl's. How did you wind up kind of bartending? Was it just they had an opening and were looking for someone? Did you have to go through bartending school, or did you just learn on the fly? Or uh, Well, I didn't actually start bartending until I moved to Toronto. So when I was working at Earl's in Saskatoon, I was just serving. Um, and then when I moved to Toronto, I worked for the Oliver Bonaccini Company for a bit. Um, and I moved over to a place called Bar Italia on College Street in downtown, in uh, kind of the Little Italy area. 
And uh, yeah, Bartelli was kind of a really well-established, well-known uh, place at the time. It's been around since 1984. So I was there in 2003, 2004. Um, and yeah, no, they needed a, a bartender and uh, to work kind of their upstairs kind of live venue area and private dining room area. So they, they asked me to go up there and work there. And I worked there with a good friend of mine. Her and I got hired together and we worked there for about a year and a half. It was fun. I mean, I didn't really know much about bartending at the time, but I knew how to mix some stuff. Um, and I was just getting into drinking my own self. So uh, I, I didn't know really too much, but it was it was good learning experience. It was a very fun vibe. It was really busy. Um, felt kind of nightclubish in some ways, but not totally. But, you know, it was it was kind of a great way to kind of get yourself into it. But I didn't really start bartending kind of as more consistent and stuff like that until I moved back to Vancouver, actually. And when I worked at Chill Winston, that's where it really kind of off. And then it's been over the last like 10, 11, 12 years, it's been pretty much full time. So yeah, so but it's it's slowly evolved. Wine was the first thing I fell in love with wine, like getting into wine. Uh, that was the first thing I kind of fell in love with. I didn't know what to drink. So I used to think that if I go on a date with a girl, a Jack and Coke seemed like a cool thing to drink. But then I realized I hate pop and I hate whiskey. And then I liked I liked wine. So I was like, I can drink this. So that's like, like five years. That's all I drank. <laughs> so and then I realized that when you go to a really shitty pub in the middle of nowhere and when you ask for wine and they look at the bottle of wine that they haven't opened in 10 years, my friends were like, you need to learn how to drink beer. <laughs> it's like, you drink wine. We don't, you know, there's, there's a time and place for certain things. But uh, yeah. From Toronto, you wind up going back to Saskatoon, right? And you're, you know, a restaurant manager, I think at the uh, Sushi Hero, Sushi Bar. How did how did that all come about? Because I mean, just going from, you know, you're working in Toronto, you're just working at a restaurant, and all of a sudden you're managing one. Uh, it, was, it was kind of just uh, fortuitous in some ways. I was uh, living in Toronto. I was, I was, I was working at Vartalia. I was, I was doing some modeling as well. And then I, my boss was just kind of a hard ass and he was kind of like an older dad in a lot of ways. And he would just ride me all the time and he used to drive me crazy. And uh, yeah, the, the day before my birthday, so April 29th, uh, 2006, he just got in my case about something really stupid. And I was just like, I'd been fed up with it. And I just walked out and I quit. And probably not the smartest thing in the world because I had never learned anything about saving money. And I didn't have a lot of money put away. So I kind of put myself in a kind of a bind. Um, had my birthday the next day and then tried, figured that I could find a new job pretty quickly. But for some reason, I wasn't able to land anything. So I kind of had to move home with my tail between my legs about two months later. And it was a good learning lesson. It was a good learning lesson of like, save some money and don't do a dumb decision like that ever again. But in a way, I wasn't very happy. I wasn't very happy in Toronto. I was kind of lonely. I was kind of uh, kind of trying to figure out my life and trying to figure out what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. And uh, I think I just missed family. And I think I just needed to kind of go home and center myself a little bit. And then when I went home uh, in the downtown, so in Saskatoon, the downtown kind of like is split into two parts because there's a river that goes through it. And so the one side on the east side, there's this area called Broadway. And I lived, I lived with my brother and a roommate right off that area. And just down the street, was Sushiro. It was just four blocks, like four houses down, literally. And so there, I, I moved home and I'd been home for maybe a month, not even. And I saw that they had a help wanted sign. I didn't really know what they what they offered or what they were. And I just went in and applied. And then I sat down with my buddy Todd, who ended up, he, and he's actually one of my best friends now. And he and I just chatted for a little bit and uh, they were looking for a server and, and he and I just hit it off really quickly. And uh, they hired me pretty much on the spot. And then I went in and they were, they were a really established restaurant. They had one of, they had probably one of the best food programs in the city, but they just didn't have a really good, strong front of house kind of leader director. And his wife, Megan, she's one of the best chefs I've ever, I've ever worked with. And 
a culinary genius. She, she, her and I became really good friends and they just needed someone who kind of added some direction to the front of house. And they didn't really have anyone doing it at that point. So I just kind of assumed that role and it just kind of took off. And we took the business from doing kind of around like, you know, $200,000 a year in sales to almost $500,000 within a year and a half. So it grew and uh, we did a really nice renovation and uh, the business really took off and it was, it, was, it was really cool and really fun time to be a part of that. Um, it's no longer, they sold it a couple of years ago, so they closed it down, but they're actually looking to revive the business now. So um, yeah, so I was, it, was, it was a pretty cool time for me and it was, it was really nice. It was nice to go home and kind of reconnect with family and stuff like that, but also figure out kind of where I wanted to take my hospitality career in some ways. Was there a big difference between working at a sushi restaurant, sushi bar versus the Italian restaurant that you came from? Or was it just kind of restaurants, a restaurant, front of house is front of house? Uh, I mean, I was always saying about the one thing about working in hospitality is the the front of house and dealing with guests is, is a pretty consistent thing. You don't really have to do that. I mean, I didn't know anything about sushi at the time. Um, so that was definitely a nice, steep learning curve. But Megan and Todd were really patient with me and um, their food is, their food is speaks for itself. I didn't really have to do much selling. Everyone just loved it. And we were always full and always busy. And uh, so that made my job very easy. And it just makes, I just basically had to make sure that the service was uh, top notch. And, you know, that was something I strive for. And, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted to create a vibe where people, you know, didn't come into a sushi bar thinking that they just had tea. I wanted them to come in and feel like they could have some good wine and some cocktails and stuff like that. And it could be a, a full dining experience. And I think we achieved that. I think when we, after we did our renovation in 2009, we started to really start see people wanting to come in and, you know, we were the place that people wanted to hit up for a you know, fun and fun, fun and engaging evening. And, uh, it was, it was a really fun time. Um, yeah, I, I if it wasn't for my ex-girlfriend, I probably would have never left. <laughs> so women, they do that to you. So then I think you started a blog, right? Roughly maybe around that time, a little after, how did you get into to blogging? Uh, yeah, so I started a really dumb blog in 2008 called Don't Get Goofy on Me that literally no one read. Uh, I fell in love with journalism. I, that was, it's funny, I always say this now, like I really didn't take off in wanting to do journalism as a career until I was about 36. But I knew, I'd already known for 10 years that I loved journalism. I just was too much of a, a pussy to do anything about it. Um, I started writing my friends long-winded emails when I was living in Toronto, probably when I was really lonely. And uh, it just was something I really enjoyed. And when I went to university, when I was in my early 20s, uh, English and creative writing and all that stuff was not something I was very good at. But um, this this type of thing was really fun for me. And then in 2008, when blogging started to become a thing, I started, I just wrote one. And it was just kind of a, just a little, it was probably more like a diary to myself. I didn't really promote it in any way, but it was kind of a fun thing to kind of gravitate towards. And then over the next seven, eight years, I thought about going to journalism school here in Vancouver and I never really did. Um, I figured that it probably wasn't something that was worthwhile, but then and uh, yeah, when I turned 36, I came back from a trip to the Philippines and I was like, you know, this is something I've always wanted to do. And this is something I've always wanted to kind of really gravitate towards. And so I, that's where Track and Food came out and started as a thing on Medium. And then a couple of months later, I applied to Scout Magazine. So Scout Magazine's the biggest food and culture magazine here in Vancouver. And uh, I'd been following Andrew Morrison and Michelle Sproul for years and kind of Scout in itself. And I really was a big fan of what they did. And they were looking for contributors. And I just... I'd only been doing it for three months at that time. And uh, I sent in an application and Andrew, Andrew liked my enthusiasm and my kind of expertise and, you know, my viewpoint on things. And they brought me on. So it's, it's, been, it's been a really good relationship ever since. And the podcast is something that we just kind of evolved over the last couple of years. So, so you're working backwards, you're, you're blogging, and then you decide to help design a bar, uh, right? Duck, duck, goose, tapas bar. You got it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that's Megan and Todd. So that's Sushiro. So that's they... They, they moved up to Vancouver for a bit and then they decided they wanted to go home and do a uh, Spanish tapas bar. Uh, it 
so then they needed someone to help them design it and help them kind of help kind of design the, the front of house and train the staff. And so I went back and helped them with a lot of that. And um, I was actually for a while there considering actually moving home and actually running it for them. Um, but unfortunately, never really became something. But yeah, no, that, that place was awesome. It just, unfortunately, it only lasted for four years, mostly because I don't think Saskatoon was ready for what they were going for. I think it was a little bit too different for the city. Um, I don't think... And um, it was kind of cool the way they padded, like Sushiro and DuckDuckGoose were across the street from each other. So you could see they could see each other. So they could kind of run across and run them both. And it was a beautiful space, cute little bar. And it was a really fun time. And yeah, it was, it was, it was a nice, you know, it was a nice way to flex a little bit of my expertise in management, having worked at Chill Winston and then uh, running that and then training staff and, you know, and stuff like that. So it was, it was a cool time. Um, it's, it was unfortunate that they, it didn't turn out to be the long lasting kind of project that they probably hoped for, but I think they were happy that they took the risk and tried it out and they, they were able to walk away, you know, um, on their own terms, which was nice. Um, but yeah, no, Magna Todd are great and they, they're like family friends to me. So anytime they need assistance, I'm always there for them. What was the, like the hardest part about designing a bar? Cause I mean, that's the first time that you've ever took on the design aspect, right? Up to that point. Uh, yeah, like I mean, me and Todd did that together. I mean, I helped him. I mean, he he's more the aesthetics and stuff like that. For me, it was just running more the design of like layout and then also just stat protocols and how they're going to run thing and and you know kind of all that stuff and you know POS systems and uh, you know just like what type of environment they want to create and stuff like that. That was more my style. So um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't really hard. I mean, you know, when you by that point, I'd already had about ten years in the industry. So once you've worked in the industry long enough you you know it's it's good to flex a little with your skills and you know it's a little bit nervous nerve-wracking a little bit but i wasn't i wasn't too worried about it being a difficult project i think you know i'm, I'm a pretty good communicator and i'm pretty pretty open-minded about a lot of things i you know i don't pretend to have all the answers but you know um i think if you go into it with uh you know with the mindset of you know we're going to do a really good thing and you're going to work your hardest to make sure that we offer a great product and, and an experience that people are going to want to come back to um then i think the Things usually will take care of themselves. And DuckDuckGoose had a really good following. People really liked it. Um, I would go back periodically throughout the couple of years that they were open and do guest bartending shifts and training, retraining and stuff like this. So, you know, it, it was it was a really cool experience. Um, you know, it, it turned out really well. And I think, you know, they just walked away from it because they just wanted to do something different. But yeah, no, I was, I was very proud of that. Were you already in Vancouver and then came back to do that? Or were you still in Saskatoon? Then? Well, I was, in, I was in Vancouver at that point, so... They, uh, I just flew back and helped them out for a while and then kind of got that off the ground. And then, How'd you wind up in, in Vancouver? What made you want to go there? Was it just like want to experience another big city and just you already lived in Toronto? And Vancouver's ex-girlfriend. So I was, I, was, I was living in Saskatoon and I was paying off my student loans. And ex-girlfriend was very impatient and she wanted to get out to Vancouver. And uh, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was a compromise. I was like, okay, we're going to go. Um, this is on you. So we moved and, um, our relationship was not a very good one. Um, bless her heart. Haley is, you know, you know, we don't really talk too much anymore, but she's a great girl. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think that maybe I should have stayed, but no, I think moving out was a great thing. And I'm, I'm very happy that I live in Vancouver. So I will always be grateful for her, for her on that point. I think my personality, I think I'm, I like living in a bigger city. I don't think I'd, I would have been very happy staying in Saskatoon for a long for the rest of my life. And I feel like, you know, she got me out at a really good time. I was only 28. And, um, you know, we woke up nine months later, but, you know, I stayed because I got work at Winston, And there was, a, again, another great place that I really enjoyed working. And I built a, some, a lot of friends, friendships here and I like the city. And so, yeah, it's a, you know, it's it was one of those turning points in my life where I could have easily stayed and I probably would still be there right now. But I'm very happy because I've been able to grow much more 
uh, here in Vancouver. And um, yeah. So when you moved to Vancouver, was it just, you didn't have a job lined up or anything? It was just like, I'll figure it out when I get there. Pretty much. Yeah. It was, yeah, 2009 uh, global financial crisis is killing everyone. And I, we, uh, we got a job in Kitsilano, we got a place in Kitsilano and I got a job at uh, Wheezy Bistro up on um, South Granville. I worked there for two months and hated it. And then I got hired as a, an assistant manager at Chill Winston, which is a, was a pretty prominent bar in Gaston. And Gaston at the point, at that point was really starting to develop um, and really take off and uh, kind of become the epicenter of the dining sphere in Vancouver. Um, it really, really took off after the 2010 Olympics. Um, once the city kind of got itself over the Olympics, they started letting in a lot more uh, restaurant applications. And uh, Chill Winston is like the hub was the hub of Gastown. It's got the biggest patio. It's like the center of Gastown. So it was it was busy. It was big. It was um, it was very it was volume heavy. Um, it was a really fun place to work. Great place. We met a lot of great friends. And uh, yeah, when you're a person who moves to a new city and you don't know that many people, um, it's a great way to build a social network. Um, I always say that like if you're if you're a person who is very shy and you uh, want to make some friends and meet some new people. Get in the hospitality industry because you know it's it's like you ride or die with each other, and you um, you can make some of the best friendships you'll ever have the rest of your life. And I mean, what do most people do when they bond? They bond over drinks and food. So it's a it's a it was a it was a great time, a really fun place for me to work, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I was able to work there. With the Olympics in Vancouver, do they a lot of the cities in the U.S. when we have events, whether it's you know Cleveland just did this, they had like the Republican National Convention like a year or two ago, they clean up the downtown area. They force you know, the homeless population or whatever. They force them into different pockets of the city, kind of beautify the city. They have the event. And then it's just kind of like everybody just kind of figures out what to do after that. Is that Was that kind of a similar thing with Vancouver and the Olympics or did they handle it better than kind of what we do here in America? Uh, I wouldn't say, no, I don't think they did. I don't that they, I think they, probably, I, don't, I think they probably tried. Um, but I mean, Vancouver's known to have the worst homelessness and opioid and drug, um, epicenter of any city in North America. Um, our downtown East side is, is pretty bad. Um, it's very prevalent. It's just outside the main downtown core. Um, it's right outside Gastown. I think they probably just urge people to just don't go in that neighborhood. It's like a four block radius of just unfortunately a lot of a lot of um, a lot of unfortunate things that happened there. I mean, you know, I think the city made some bad choices in the mid '90s when they shut down a big mental health institute um, that really was a big kind of uh, thing for the city. But you know, Vancouver was trying to it was trying to grow and flex, and they tried to you know the the, the Olympics brought a lot of great things to the city. We got a, a really good uh, SkyTrain. Um, we got, they had to rebuild, um, a lot of things in the downtown core and stuff like this. So there's a lot of legacies that come from it, but yeah, unfortunately they haven't been able to uh, fix the problem. The city actually, and the province are actually really starting to tackle this issue now. And I, but it's, it's a big issue and it's one that they're probably going to be working on for a long, long time, but, uh, no, they were not successful, <laughs> unfortunately. Well, is, I couldn't remember if when we were there, I know the area that you're talking about now that area, it's not decriminalized, right? It's just kind of like, that's just the area or how is it i mean like drugs are i mean drugs are i mean marijuana is legal in canada now but drugs are much like they don't they're not the police aren't you know taking people to prison every single day for shooting up with heroin and stuff like that but it's it's prevalent it's 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 a big issue there's um there's safe inject safe injection sites everywhere um they try to encourage people to at least if you're going to do it you know to be safe about it i mean it's it's a big issue um it's a problem. I, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm not smart enough to maybe know how to fix it. 
you know, I think at the end of the day, sometimes I think as, as people that live in the city, I think we lose a little bit of the compassion that we need to have for people that are struggling with addiction and mental, mental issues. But, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, I live in Chinatown, which is just, I live in the epicenter of where it is. So I see it every single day and it's, it's tough. It's, um, you know, you want to sometimes just help people, but you don't know how, um, sometimes people don't want to be helped. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a, it's a big issue. Um, and, uh, hopefully one day we can, you know, make sure that people are living their best lives. How do you wind up at the, you wind up bartending at Fairmont Pacific Rim then kind of is the next stop, right? Yeah, that's, that's where I'm at right now. Um, been there for nine years. Um, the Fairmont was just, they were, they were built for the Olympics. The hotel itself opened seven days before the 2010 Olympics. Uh, Ian Gillespie is, uh, the owner of West Bank. It's the biggest development company in, in the province. He's one of the biggest developers in the world. Um, they built that and it's, They've strived to make it one of the best hotels in the world. I think we're rated one of the top 80 best hotels in the world. We were rated the best tra- business traveler hotel in the world. We're the host hotel for TED Talks. I mean, it's our hotel is phenomenal. We're the best hotel in Canada. It's it's amazing. It's a beautiful place. Um, a friend of mine was working there who I worked with at Joe Winston, and she was saying that they were looking for talent. They were the bar was expanding, and they paid a lot more money. They were paying they were paying double what I was making at Joe Winston. So it was very easy for for me to to maybe apply and put my put my word up there and I had a good friend who worked there already so he put a good word for me and went in got hired and uh, it's been it's been a great ride ever since it's, def- it's definitely not my vibe I mean I'm not I'm not uh, I love where I work but uh, it's it's I'm more of a kind of a I don't know how do you say it I'm more of a little bit more of an edgy person when it comes to the places that I frequent but the Fairmont is beautiful it's uh, you know the clientele are are lovely. It's a it's a great place. They they treat us really well. I'm very lucky where I work. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been great. I have a really good team. The bar program. We have one of the strongest bar programs in the world. I work with some of the best bartenders. I've worked with three Canadian national champions. Two guys who came in the top five in the world class of champion uh, bartending. Um, you know, I we have a we have a couple of teams that have won some stuff. So, I mean, like we have a, we have an extremely world class uh, bar program with botanists upstairs and our lobby lounge downstairs. Um, it's it's we're very progressive. The, the guys are awesome. I'm the wine guy, so um, I let all that cocktail competition stuff go to those guys. But yeah, no, we have a we have a really strong team. Probably one of the strongest bar teams in, in the country. It's been a great place to work. You guys are in the lounge part, right? So if you walk in the lobby lounge, the lobby lounge, our lounge is like it's like a Vegas lounge. It's like a nightclub. It's huge. It's busy. It's fun. Uh, live music every night. Uh, you know, there's Friday nights. There's 300 people standing at my bar. Um, it's 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 the place to be in Vancouver. It's it's a pretty cool space. You know, even if it's not something you really love or like you wouldn't expect that you would like, you know, I've had friends come in who don't think they would love it, and I bring them in and they love it, and they always have a great time. You know, who doesn't like to, who doesn't like to drink champagne and, and dance? So it's gonna be a pretty fun place to go. No, it looked awesome when we walked by it. I mean, because we went upstairs to to we ate a botanist the time that we were there. So, but it was yeah, live music. There was I think might have been like a jazz band or something playing that night or something like that. I, I don't really remember, but um, so yeah, what you know, you get into wine, you're you're working at Pacific Rim and you decide to take the, did you take the intro sommelier course first and then do the certified or did you jump straight into, I don't even know if you can jump past the intro into the certified, but. Yeah, I did, I, I did both roads. So, you know, when you want to become a certified sommelier, you can do it through the quartermaster sommeliers, which is kind of the most prominent one. You know, if anybody's seen the Psalm documentary on Netflix, uh, that's, that's kind of the route that a lot of people go. So that's more the service oriented. So I did, there's four steps for that one. Um, there's the, uh, beginner, then there's the certified, and then there's the advanced, and then there's the master level. I did the uh, beginner, and then I did the certified. Um, and but I actually done my WSET program before that, so that's the Wine Spirit Spirit Education Trust out of London. 
And uh, there's four levels for that as well. Um, you can skip one. One's really, really beginner. I mean, that's for people really who don't know anything. Level two is pretty chill. Level three is like a jump up. And then level four is level four is a big fuck you. That, that one's really hard. <laughs> Use my French there. But uh, level four, I did the level four. So that's a level four diploma. And uh, yeah, that's where you're, you're, you're getting really serious. There's, you know, that's your high end, serious certified sommelier um, stuff. And you got to know your stuff. And it's, you you pretty much know everything in the world about wine. My good friend, uh, Mike, is about to take his big exams, and I don't envy him in any way. It's, you're studying 20 hours a week for a year on. It's a two-year program, and it's, it's, it's pretty intensive. It's great. I, I, I was lucky to work, go and have a lot of great teachers who taught me. I was, I was taught by, by an MW. Uh, I was taught by a couple of people who are about to do their master's song right now. So I was very lucky to learn from some great minds and some people who are really passionate about wine. I learned, well, but ironically, I learned once I was doing my diploma that I didn't want a career in wine. It was funny that I'd gone that far. And that's when I realized that as far as I went, I was... Because at one point that I was really thinking about going to work in the Okanagan or work somewhere abroad and work in a, in a winery and you know become maybe a vintner or, or a winemaker. Uh, that was That's kind of the area that I'm, I was more gravitated towards. But then um, it was just something I just didn't want to do. And then I realized that I didn't want to be a sommelier. So I mean, like I didn't really want to be someone who's like a full-time psalm on the floor. That's why I love where I work right now because I can do it kind of a bit of both bartending and song. Um, but I realized that there's so many more people out there who love wine way more in a different way and way more passionate than I am. And I, I'm very passionate, don't get me wrong. I love wine, but I realized that I love journalism more. And that was the thing that really hit me is it, it was it was either I keep going in wine or I really scratch this itch of journalism. And I decided that journalism was the one that I wanted to move more into. That was the one I was more passionate about. So, But I, I love all my wine knowledge. I love, I don't take any of that for granted. Um, it's really helped me in my life and obviously my career. And, you know, it's, you know, being, I'm still certified and I still have my diploma. So it's, I'm very happy that I was able to do those. So with the, the level four diploma, does that equate to basically a master SOM or an advanced SOM? Because it's basically two different organizations, right? Got it. Yeah. So the, the WSET diploma of wine is basically like the advanced level of the quartermaster. So you're just, and then the master level, there's two, there's the master of wine and then there's the master sommelier. And those two are basically the same. So those are, those are the two. The master of wine is basically the next step uh, in, in wine certification. Those are the two highest levels you can take in the world. So master of wine is more theory. It's more like winemaking and it's more that style. And so you have to do a, you, it's like a three to four pro, four year program. You're, you get a mentor, you spend, you have to work in vineyards, you have to, you have to do a thesis. It's a way more kind of than schooling. It's more, it's like getting your doctorate in wine. That was the one I was going to do. And then the master, master, uh, master sommelier is more like service, uh, knowing how to sell wine, stuff like that. It's more of a service oriented one. So it depends. It depends what you're, you're, they're both great. They're both super hard. It just depends what style you want. Has anybody ever done both? There's some psychotics out there who've done both. And, uh, um, I think I, I'm not sure if Jensis Robinson has both. She might. Uh, Rice Pender might have it as well. Um, there's a couple other people I think that might have them. But yeah, there's not too many. Um, I mean, I think there's only like three to 400 of each in the world. Um, yeah, and the problem is once you go, and that's the other thing, is like once you go that far, like I realized that after I did my certified and once I did my diploma, is like once you go the advanced route and you go that far, you kind of have to go for your master because it's, 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 it's so involving and so in-depth that you, um, that, you know, they say that the master, master wine and master song exams are one of the hardest exams out of any profession in the world. And so like, for me, I realized I was like, I don't really want to go that far. Like I'm, I'm happy where I'm at right now. And there's some people who do, and I, I've met them and I know them and I have all the, all the utmost praise for them because it's not a very easy thing to do. But like, the problem is, is that 
it, it, it become kind of a vicious circle because once you go and if you fail, because you're probably going to fail the first time, it's not like you're going to stop. It's not like you're just going to be like, okay, I tried it once and I'm going to give up. You're going to keep going. And usually you have to wait a year to retake the exams. So it's like, it's, it can be a three to four, five to six year process. And it's a big sacrifice. It's an extremely massive sacrifice for your career, your business, your personal life. You better have a very supportive partner. Um, and, you know, you better have, uh, you know, you have to stay fully disciplined and focused the whole time. And I was just like, I don't, I don't want to go that far. And that's why there's only a select few people who do it in the world. And um, yeah, the people that do it, I mean, the rewards are immense, but you got to really love it. How many, I tried finding, I couldn't find, maybe, you know, how many, I think but from what I found, there was like three master psalms in Canada, but that was like a 2013 article and they were all in Toronto. And there was about like 30 masters of wine professionals across Canada. I think Canada's got about seven, six or seven now. Like Bart Phillip is one of the masters of wine in, in BC here. So I think there's, I think there's probably like seven masters of wine now. And there's probably like, yeah, a handful of master psalms. So they, they, I mean, it's grown um, considerably ever since the song documentary came out. So there's been a lot more interest in, in the career and in the field. So uh, they're passing more people just because more people are entering it. So yeah, I would, those numbers are probably pretty close to what you've, what you've found. Then you, from there, wind up going to Scout Magazine. So you, now you're bartending, you're working at Scout, you're writing, you're doing both things that you want to do. Then eventually, I think you wind up starting the podcast, which was, was that just a natural extension of your writing or was it, was it something that within Scout, they were like, Hey, maybe we should look at this kind of medium too, as well. Anybody want to do it or how'd all that kind of come about? No, that was a natural extension. Actually. Uh, I wanted to, uh, uh, kind of do that with Andrew and Michelle, but they were, they were busy, uh, taking on a new project. So they didn't, they didn't want to, they weren't sure how they wanted to progress in that medium. And then my good friend, Mickey, who's my co-host on track and food, he was starting up a podcast with our good friend, Tristan and, they were starting up a music and film podcast. And then I brought him up and he's, he's got a degree in audio engineering. And um, I just brought up to him. I was like, Hey, I've always wanted to do a podcast, but I just don't know anything about how to produce them. And so this is in early 2018. And then he's like, well, I do, I can do all that stuff. And then I was like, would you want, and he works in the industry as well. We work together at the Fairmont. He works at the Fairmont airport here in Vancouver. And he works as a bartender as well. So he knows the industry. He's been in the industry just as long as I have. And um, he's like, yeah, I'd love to do a food and culture one with you. And then, so we started it and, yeah, we had no idea what the hell we were doing. And um, I was very shy and very, you know, it's weird being in front of a microphone. But we slowly, you know, we know a lot of people in the city. We started slowly started interviewing friends and talking about what they're doing. And then it's just kind of slowly snowballed. And, you know, it's it's been a... And then with Andrew, Michelle and Scout, once we started to really take off and the podcast started to have a pretty good following, um, I approached them about the idea of like, you know, maybe you guys don't need to produce your own podcast. You can just sponsor ours. And then that can be kind of an extension of what Scout's doing. And yeah, they were on board. And so they've been, we've been working with them now for over a year and a half and it's been great. And um, yeah, I know the, the podcast has been fun. It's been well-received within the industry. Um, I was able to get our top uh, provincial health officer this past summer, the head, our, the BC's attorney general. Um, we just, I just recently interviewed the head of the BC Restaurants Association Prominent restaurateurs, sommeliers, uh, chefs—you know—we, you know, very similar to what you do as well. Um, you know, we've got some big, big guests we're trying to line up here pretty quickly as well. Um, so hopefully, we can keep the ball rolling, keep growing, and um, yeah, it's it's been a really fun, fun experience. People really, you know, the if you're a journalist these days, I mean, I think you know you'd be you'd be you'd be silly to not have a podcast. I think it's another form of journalism. It's just a, a new medium. It's something that people can do on the go. 
um, something they can do in the car, biking, riding, walking, and, and they can still take in information and and uh, but in a, in their own time and versus reading. And yeah, it's it's been great. I really enjoy it and it's been fun. What was probably the biggest challenge looking back on from when you started the podcast to now, do you think for you individually, like, was it just being comfortable behind the mic or was it trying to figure out like, is anybody listening to this or, you know, just getting comfortable behind the mic, but also being uh, good at navigating and steering conversation and uh, not being, uh, I'm still learning this one still, but not being afraid to ask uh, tough questions, um, stuff like that. That's, that's definitely been something I'm trying to learn, but yeah, just, being comfortable, um, realizing that you, it is a conversation you, you can prepare all you want, but then you kind of have to let all that stuff go once you get into the conversation. Cause I find if you don't, you have too much prepared and you're not listening and then it's not really a conversation. You're just waiting to ask questions. So it's, it's gotta be more natural as well. Um, but yeah, I think, and are people listening? Uh, yeah, no, we've, we've had a pretty good following. People do listen. We're very, I'm very, we're very fortunate that people really like what we've been doing and uh, it's funny that I'm the host, but I always get this from a lot of people. I've had people stop me on the street and be like, oh, you do track and food? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, like I love Mickey. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's very nice. Fuck six. I'm like, oh. so, but whatever, it's fine. Uh, no, I love Mickey. Mickey's awesome. He's got, he's got a nice high pitched voice and he's, he's, he's really, uh, he can be surly sometimes, but he's very, he's very opinionated, but he's very intelligent and a very sweet guy. And he's, 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 he's been a great partner throughout this whole thing. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a. Uh, it's been fun. It's been it's been good. But no, I mean, like I don't know. I mean, you you you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna miss some. You're gonna mess them up. You're gonna learn. You're gonna you're gonna get better at it. You're gonna you're always gonna be your own your own uh, worst critic. But I think at the end of the day, if you if you just try to keep pushing, try to keep getting better every day, I think uh, you know you will. So. Is there a person that you haven't had on the podcast yet that's like your your dream guest? I actually just emailed them the other day. So Michael Pollan's got a new book coming out uh, in July called How to How to this is your mind on plants it's about uh, caffeine opium and mescaline i emailed his literary agent to get him on and uh, i just got an email back from them saying that they're in the process of maybe seeing if they can make that work so that's one i definitely want to get i definitely want to get nick kikonis on uh i wrote an article about a year ago um on uh food delivery uh, on, on um talk because he's the owner of talk and he's obviously he's the guy he's the brainchild behind alinea and next in chicago one of the biggest restaurateurs in america he um I wrote a thing on uh, on his platform talk and and uh, kind of the platforms versus like you know how much uh, open table and resi and reserve and you know talking stuff like this, how much they charge restaurants and I figured that that's really expensive and is there a way that we can find a way to make it cheaper and maybe make these things more free on other platforms and he comments on my article and you know he's definitely someone I want to I want to get on for sure um, I've reached out to Dave Chang's people as well, because he's going to be opening up a, play, a restaurant here in, here in Vancouver in the fall. So I definitely want to get him on. Um, yeah, those are some people. I mean, ideally if I could, if I could talk to anyone, I mean, yeah, those are some of the, some of the big names. I'd love to talk to Sushi Lee because he's a, he's a really prominent restaurateur in Toronto. Um, he's, he's been around for 40 years and he's, he's sound, he seems like a really genuine, sweet and nice guy. Um, and yeah, uh, in the city. No, uh, I think I've gotten most people that I wanted so far. Yeah, they just sold Talk for like four hundred million or something like that. Yeah, they sold it to Squarespace, which is our hosting site, our website. Maybe. Um, yeah, he sold it. I mean, it makes sense actually because I mean, they've, I mean, Squarespace has already partnered with Stripe uh, as a payments uh, payments uh, um, uh, processor, and I mean, it makes sense. You know, a lot of restaurants use um, Squarespace as their domain. Um, so, I mean, if you can already have a platform that's already set and ready to go and talk, and I think. Out of all the restaurant reservation platforms out there, Talk is by far the best one. Um, they have the lowest fees. Um, they, the customer support's pretty good. 
open table, not a big fan. It's really expensive. Um, and, uh, I mean, they have a, they have a good interface, but they I feel like they're a little bit dated, but they still have the line share of the market right now. So I think that's something that's going to be changing, but I think, you know, I think a lot of stuff's going to be, the whole market itself is going to be changing with the landscape of, um, uh, you know, how easy it is to use stuff on Instagram, um, stuff like that. So, uh, you know, restaurants, restaurants are, you know, definitely going to hopefully come out of the pandemic, you know, beaten up and hurt and there's going to be fewer of them. And hopefully, um, uh, they can have good partnerships with these apps and these companies. So then you wound up, uh, I think about two years ago now started mid range. So you're like, is that an extension of scout or is that a whole separate thing that you do or what's that? That's a, that's a thing with me making interest in that we do together. So we had, we had our podcast tracking food and then we had our podcast beats on repeat, which is their music and film podcast. And they didn't really have landing pages. So we were like, why don't we create a thing where we can have it where people can come and check out our work there? And I still did a lot of writing. Tristan writes a lot as well. He's a very, very accomplished writer. And Mickey, Mickey just does his whatever, whatever the hell he does. And then so me and Mickey are really big basketball guys and we're big fans of the NBA. And then obviously we're all big fans of music. And so there's mid-range song tones and then mid-range basketball shot. So we figured and Mickey came up with this name. He's like, why don't we call it mid-range? So it was kind of a landing page for all that. And then it's kind of blossomed into kind of our own personal. We have, we have a couple of contributors now and it's, it's just kind of come, come kind of like our own personal, um, project that we're trying to develop. Um, we have a couple of podcasts on there. We're probably going to be adding a couple soon. Um, we write, you know, a lot of stuff about food and culture and film and Tristan and Mickey like to do a lot of stuff on there. So it's, it's just kind of like where we can put a lot of our stuff in one place and people can access it. And we're actually, it's starting to develop and grow a pretty big audience. We have people who read it and reads, read it from all over the world. Um, our analytics tell us that we have a lot, a pretty big subscriber base. And it's, it's been a fun thing um, for us. It's just kind of, you know, our own little play thing. So we're not making any money off it yet, but hopefully we can turn that into maybe something that we can um, generate some income. But right now we're just trying to build the brand and just kind of just have fun with it. So With basketball, who do you guys root for? Because are you a Raptors fan or were you a Grizzlies fan, but they obviously left. You can't root for Seattle because that team's gone. Uh, yeah. So this is, this is the, this is fighting words in the, in the mid range family. So, Tristan's not a big bat and big fan, but me and Mickey are. Mickey's a big uh, uh, Portland Trailblazers fan. That's his team. Loves, loves Damian Lillard. Uh, I mean, I was always a big Kobe Bryant fan. That was, that was my favorite player. So I was a Laker fan. So uh, I love the Raptors. Don't get me wrong. I, it was when they won the title in 2019. That was pretty amazing. Um, you know, just it's kind of the homegrown team. Um, I, was, I wasn't living in Vancouver when the Grizzlies were here, but I did see one game um, when Kobe was young in t- 2001. But yeah, no, I was, I was the biggest Laker fan. Kobe was my boy. So, and I just loved watching them. And so I followed his career pretty much from its entirety. So, uh, yeah, when that, when that accident happened last year, that was a pretty big blow for me, but yeah, always Lakers. So, um, but I have other teams that I love. I mean, I just love the game overall, you know, so it's, uh, it's playoff time coming up. If Seattle gets a team, our allegiance is going to change or are you guys sticking with you? Oh, you stick with your team, but I'll definitely go to games. You know, like I, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm still frustrated that, uh, that, I shouldn't say this, but I'm still frustrated that New Orleans kind of has a team because they don't really have a really big following. Like no one goes to the games and I kind of feel like you better in Seattle, but it is what it is. They'll get somebody to pony up half a billion dollars or whatever they want to start another team. No, I mean, it's to get a team in the NBA now, it's, you're looking at like 2.5 billion. Somebody, somebody will put together the money. Well, I was, I was kind of frustrated because I feel like Steve Ballmer should move the Clippers because the Clippers will always be second fiddle to the Lakers in LA. And he's from Seattle. He lives in Seattle. He's, you know, he was, he was the CEO of Microsoft for years. He's worth billions. I was like, and he's building a new arena in, in LA. And I'm like, why not just move to Seattle and be the king of one city instead of being always second in LA? But whatever. Well, I think some of it's kind of like what the 
I think they're using kind of the NFL playbook for the longest time. It was, if you don't build a new stadium, that team's going to go to LA. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's always been like with some of these sales going through like the Milwaukee sale a couple of years ago and stuff, it was, well, if you don't keep the team here, you know, you have to build a new stadium. Otherwise the team's going to go to Seattle. And then I think once they get all their arenas up to date, then somebody will get a Seattle and they'll just pony up the expansion fee or whatever. Cause they're going to add one in Vegas too. Like it's, it's pretty obvious what they're doing. Well, because they have, um, uh, I mean, the the Seattle N- NHL team, I think, is ready to go for next year. I think they're done, done the renovation for the key arena, so I think that's exciting. So yeah, so I think well, now that they have the hockey team there, I think it makes sense that they're going to get a basketball team. So it just depends, just depends when you know. I I would like for I would like for Vancouver to get a team again. I think I think number one is probably Seattle. Number two is probably Vegas, and then I think Vancouver is probably number three. So, but it all depends. It all depends if the league wants to. Uh, expand. Um, the, the great thing about expansion is the, all the owners get all that all that expansion money, so they might want that. But then, who knows? So, but you know, I'm I'm loving the league right now. But yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to have a team in Vancouver. That'd be amazing. <laughs> With uh, you know being so involved in like the Vancouver kind of culinary scene, has it changed a lot since you know you first got there and you first started working there? Has it changed enough? Uh, I mean, it's changed. It definitely has. I mean, it's definitely thriving. Uh, there's a lot of young, great entrepreneurs in the city who are really trying to do some really cool stuff. Um, it's, I mean, Vancouver's a, really t- Vancouver's a great market, but still, you know, it still thinks it's a big city, but it's not. It's still a, re- a pretty small city. It's pretty spread out. Um, but we have some of the great best talent in the, in the country here for sure. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it still has kind of the dominance of the chains in some ways, which is, understandable i mean that's kind of a big thing in the western canada here but um yeah there's a lot of great young restaurateurs doing some really cool things um you know from the guys at st lawrence to my friends at dachi to you know uh you know the diamond is an, an amazing cocktail bar you know um stuff like that you know the kefir yard and the kefir bar you know keepers one of the best cocktail bars you can go in the world i mean there's there's a lot of great stuff here acorns like one of the best vegetarian restaurants you can go to in the world so i mean there's a lot of great um people here people are very passionate um people really care about their you know the local community and you know there's a kind of that element to it and people are pretty tight-knit here um you know if you work in the community long enough you will pretty much at the end of the day know everyone um so that's 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 a nice thing people really generally want to go out for each other but it's a very expensive city it's one of the most expensive cities in the world and it's not easy opening a bar and restaurant and it's hard to take risks when things are so expensive. So um, we probably could have a little bit more diversity when it comes to concepts and ideas. And, you know, hopefully that's going to come soon, but you know, it is what it is. I commend anyone who has the gusto and the balls to you know, put the money up and risk, uh, risk it to go in this industry. Cause it's, it's tough. It's, it's never easy. It's, it's always changing and you got to adapt and you got to grow. And, um, but you know, I mean, if you have the, if you have the creativity and the, the ambition, all the power to you because if you can do it you can, if you can see, see in vancouver it's a pretty amazing thing where do you think over the next five ten years like where do you think vancouver's dining and, and food scene is headed do you think it's going to be more chef driven chef owned restaurants or switch to kind of vegetarian or i mean that's a big thing that's coming around yeah like vancouver's got a pretty big uh, asian influence obviously because of the where we are located as a port city um but no, I, I think chef driven is definitely something that's going to be going more that way. I think, you know, people like those concepts. Um, but yeah, no, I think, I think, you know, we go through phases here in the city. Sometimes it's all Italian that's opening up and then sometimes it's Spanish and sometimes it's Mexican. So I think, I think you're always going to see trends that are kind of prevalent. I think people see what other people are doing and it's succeeding. So people kind of try to mimic that. Um, barbecue seems like something that's really starting to become a thing here. So the one great thing about the city is we have a, a wide variety of selection and choices. So, um, which is great, but. 
you know, I think, you know, in 10 years, you're probably going to have another two to 300,000 people living in the, in, in the lower mainland of Vancouver. So, you know, that's just going to add more, more diversity, more, more great ideas and more people really trying to take chances. So yeah, I just see us getting better and bigger and excited to see where it goes. I mean, Vancouver's pretty expensive to live in. I, I think a lot of people from some of the stuff I was reading, like drive 45 minutes to an hour one way, just even if they're working in like the hospitality industry. Is that, is the city figured out a way to kind of combat the rising housing costs or is it just we're up against the ocean? There's really not much we're going to be able to do like public transit or, or is there anything on the docket coming up? I mean, I mean, it's not that bad. I mean, like getting around here, I mean, Vancouver, the Vancouver core is not that big. You can get from one end of the city to the other really quickly. Um, but if you live in the burbs, like Port Moody or New West or stuff like that, I mean, if you're going through traffic, it can take a little while. But otherwise, it's not, it's not, the distance isn't that huge. Like if you're coming from Richmond, it's only a half hour. So um, the Canada line, they're expanding some of the public transit. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's some logistics stuff there. But um, have they worked on the, affordability of the city no not even close i mean prices in the city are always going up and they're ridiculous and they're completely out of whack with what um people in the city actually make um vancouver is still considered it's still very much a speculative city in a lot of ways um you know a lot of it, a lot of foreign influence uh stuff like that and you know uh it's unfortunate that uh you know the average person pretty much is priced is priced out of the market you know a one-bedroom condo you're looking at eight hundred thousand dollars so you know so it's it's not cheap um, if you want to buy a house for a family of three, four, you know, you're looking at $1.52 million. So it's, it's not something that the average person can make on their regular salary. So you got to hope that you have family or assistance or you have a really good job. But, you know, it is what it is. You know, I don't think everyone who lives in London or Paris or New York uh, envisions themselves as uh, homeowners all the time. I think once you start to live in prominent, big network cities, um, there's some trade-offs. I think if you work hard, you can, uh, you can achieve anything, I guess. So it just depends on how much your discipline is there. With such a big Asian population in Vancouver, has we've had here in America, I mean, it, it, I, I'm not sure how often it happens. It's definitely been reported on the news, but different hate crimes against people of Asian ethnicity and, and stuff like that. Is Vancouver kind of insulated from that almost because the population is so prevalent in the city? Or is that still kind of happening there too as well in response to coronavirus and all that stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I believe it has. I read something recently that Vancouver uh, definitely has a, a lot of uh, Asian hate and stuff like that. I don't know of it any personally, so it's, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to comment on this. But um, yeah, I mean, I've read reports that it's, I don't know. I mean, I don't see anyone speaking bad about, you know, the Asian community here. I mean, it's, it's a big part of our community. I think I feel like most people uh, respond well to it and uh, appreciate it. We love, I mean, Canada is a multicultural country. I mean, you know, it's, we got a lot of we got Southeast Asian people here. We got a lot of people from everywhere. So, um, you know, most people are pretty inclusive about most things. But I mean, yeah, you're going to have some, you're going to have some pockets of people who are maybe a little bit less tolerant to different cultures, and um, that's unfortunate. But you know, I think if you, you know, if you try to live your life with compassion and, and uh, an open mind to how other people live their lives, I think you can you can see the beauty in what what other people do and offer. And you know, I think I think if more people looked at life like that, I think we'd be a better society for things and for people overall. But yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I love ramen, so I'm very happy that the Japanese live here. <laughs> so, so and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, we have some of the best sushi in the world, and you know, I think, you know, I think, I think being in a, in a, I'd love to, I love living in a city where there's a wide breadth of different cultures. I think it, it gives you a great sense of the world, and that not everyone's like you. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people, at least here in America with, you know, I, I don't think most Americans are probably the most adventurous in terms of travel anyways, but definitely with coronavirus kind of shutting everything down and people not being able to travel, there is something to be said for going to a different country, going to a different city, being in the city for X amount of days, but being exposed to you know, different ethnicities, different races and, and stuff like that. And I think you know, at least here in America, part of the uh, kind of, you know, dumping gasoline on the fire kind of situation is because people just have been stuck and they forgot what it's what it's like to be in a different place and see how people are living and see different people, you know, running restaurants or businesses or walking down the street or sharing a subway car with, you know, somebody who's from a different country and stuff like that. So, so I think it's, it's probably more, you know, prevalent here than, than Canada, but yeah, I was just curious with, with being such a, so much of, you know, the population in Vancouver being Asian or, or descendants of different, you know, Asian countries, how that was kind of going on there. But it, it sounds like it's as expected. It's, it's better there than it is here. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would, yeah, I don't think it's that. You know, I don't think it's that big of an issue here. You know, people are pretty accepting of each other. Um, I mean, culturally, some some groups live more predominantly in their own spheres. You know, but otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I don't see too much of an issue. So it's uh, Canada's Canadians are pretty tolerant still. So it's a good thing. When you go out to eat, you know, because you're in the industry, especially with like like wine, do you find yourself like compulsively like first thing you do when you sit down at a restaurant is like look at the wine list? Or are you able to kind of separate yourself and like, I'm just here to have a good time. I'm not real worried about what they have on their list compared to where I work or anything like that? Uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely am very much. I, I separate that for sure. I usually, you know, I unless I'm going out for a certain dinner or events um, where I'm looking to maybe purchase something or I want to experience a certain thing that I know that restaurant's going to offer. But for the most part, no, I'm, I'm pretty chill. Um, honestly, I really don't order wine that often on most wine lists. I usually just get beer because um, I maybe it's because I just know too much. And, um, and I'm a little bit, you know, if I'm going to order a certain type of wine, I'm probably just going to get a bottle. And I don't, you know, unless it's a certain engagement, I'm not looking to do that very often. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty chill about that stuff. I know friends who can't turn that off. They can't turn off their their brain from being working in the industry to that. And so I always think that's kind of weird. You know, I always find it weird when I see people stacking their plates. I'm like, no, that's their job. Relax. You're here to chill out. But, you know, to each his own, I guess. So, but I'm, I'm pretty chill with that stuff. I, don't, I really don't care. So we got some more questions for you that we ask everybody. So we'll get to this in a second. But what's next for you professionally as a sommelier, a bartender, a culinary media personality, a culture journalist? Is there anything else? Or is it just kind of just doing more of what you've already been doing? Uh, kind of just keep doing what I'm doing and keep growing and um, keep looking for new opportunities. Um, maybe expand the podcast and uh, in some ways and try to keep getting, you know, getting better at that. And with writing, just... You know, um, keep writing and writing good stuff. And then, you know, I've thought about starting a Substack, um, my own uh, publication, and, you know, like a paid subscription sub uh, publication. So I'm debating that idea. And, you know, maybe maybe finding, you know, maybe look, you know, maybe finding another um, magazine or another uh, business that I could work for, journal or, you know, uh, paper or something like that. Maybe something I could do maybe a little bit more full time. Um, you know, I've... I've, I've Sometimes I think about that. I wanted to. I want to work in journalism full time. Sometimes I really consider that, and I want to do that. But then sometimes I like kind of the dual aspect of both doing both, um, because being a journalist and writer sometimes can be a little bit uh, isolating. And I'm I'm very much an extrovert, and I like being around people. So I do like being working in that environment. And I also like the fact that when I write about the industry and talk about it, I'm still in it. 
So I can still kind of have that perspective. Um, so I'd say right now I have a pretty good, pretty good life in the sense I'm able to do both. But yeah, just keep plugging away and keep trying to build on my successes. And then, you know, I always find that when you do that, usually good things come your way and you can always keep growing and getting better. And new opportunities will present themselves when they do. And um, yeah, just... Just, I find that, the, you know, if you want to do something in life, you just got to keep doing it. And, you know, if you're really passionate about it, you just got to keep, keep at it every day. You're not, you know, it's, it's, it's not a race. It's, uh, it's a journey. And that's the fun part. Um, anybody who's successful in life, it wasn't something that they achieved in one day. Um, it's something that they strived at every single day. And that's kind of how I look at it. And hopefully I can keep working to get better. Do you guys think, I mean, you guys aren't strictly Vancouver. You guys are based in Vancouver, but as borders open up, do you think more of like Seattle will kind of bleed into what you guys kind of cover and talk about? Because I mean, you're pretty close. It's it's fairly easy to get back and forth once everything's fully working, you know, with vaccinations and if they decide on a vaccine passport or do you think like that's like a natural progression as you guys grow, like starting to kind of incorporate the Seattle or Portland markets into what you guys do or? Uh, I don't know. I mean, like probably not in a way, cause I, I do like uh, really honing in on local journalism. I think that's something that's really missing in a lot of ways, but um, I mean, maybe in the sense of like, I don't know if we'd report about it consistently, but I think, you know, if I found a topic or a person that I wanted to discuss, uh, I'd have no problem doing that. Um, so I would say it'd be more, it'd be more specific instead of consistent. So that's maybe how we would expand. Um, I probably would expand more. We probably would expand. Well, I mean, like I'm open to anything, but that's one thing is, you know, if it's, if it's a conversation or a topic that I want to discuss, we'll look to do it. Um, but generally we'll probably try to stay within more of the local community. All right. So wrapping up here, we kind of ask these questions to everybody. So you're kind of getting probably a lot of the Psalm questions, but incorporated some others. So who would you say so far is kind of the biggest influence on your career, either it be your career as a sommelier and a bartender or your journalism career? Is there anybody that you look back on for everything that you've done so far and say, that's the person that had the, the biggest influence on where I'm at? Uh, well, that's a really good question. Um, I'd say, I'd say my friends, Todd and Megan were a really big influence on me when it comes to just really final falling in love with hospitality again, uh, especially my friend, Megan, she's, she's, she's an amazing chef and working with her was really fun. Uh, she really showed me kind of, uh, uh, an attention to detail that I really enjoyed. Um, a, a loving mentality of really food and stuff like that. Um, with wine, no, nah, there's not really any major mentors. I was, I've, I've worked with some amazing people. I've been taught by some amazing people, but no, nothing like that. And then with, with regards to hospitality, probably just the guys I work with my team, um, the boys, you know, we've all been working together. We've had the same team for the, the entire time that I've worked there, um, outside of a few people who added on. So we were a pretty tight knit group and just my team, my team, my team's awesome. Uh, the guys and the girl and, and Avita, the one girl that I work with, uh, she's fantastic. And, you know, I have a really good team. I, we all lean on each other. We're all, you know, wishing the best for each other. Uh, we're all kind of like a family now. So I'd say my team, my team, my team, they're awesome. Uh, yeah, I'd say those are the people that have really kind of inspired me to stay in the industry and, and get better. What is your desert island wine? So like you can only take one wine with you if you're going to get stranded on a desert island. So a running joke for me would be, I would say baby duck, because I just think it's really funny. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh my God. Uh, I'm a, I really like bubbles. So I'm, I'm, I'm a champagne kind of guy. So, I mean, I love, I mean, my favorite region in the world is Little War Valley. Um, if I was to open a restaurant, I probably would only do wines from Little War and Champagne. Um, I think everything, I think Loire gives you everything that you can look for in the world. And I think the price point is fantastic. Um, and plus I like wines with acidity and it's a Northern climate in 
the northern part of France. So the wines are just absolutely delicious. Anywhere from, you know, from the, the Nantes all the way over to, you know, the center vineyards and Sancerre and stuff like that in Puy-Pimé. Um, I do love, I do love uh, a Sauvignon, you know, classic dry style of Chenin Blanc. But no, I'd pick, um, give me a bottle of Krug. Give me a Krug champagne. I'll take that with me. What's a restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't, you know, for this case, I say, isn't in the Fairmont Pacific Hotel. So uh, what would you recommend to somebody who was like, got stuck at the airport, layover, you know, they reach out to you, hey, where should I go eat? Uh, I'd probably say, uh, I'd say St. Lawrence. St. Lawrence is awesome. Uh, JC Poirier is the owner there. He's fantastic. The the team there is amazing. It's Quebecois French food. Um, anybody who knows me knows how much I love a pork shop. And uh, they have like this fantastic pork chop on the menu and they have this rice pudding, which is to die for. I love everything about that place. It's cute, small, it's intimate. Um, it's service is fantastic. It's top notch. Um, it's, it, it was rated the best restaurant in Vancouver the last two years. I think it's rated like the fourth or fifth best restaurant in Canada. It's, it's fantastic. The plate's really cute. It's yeah, it's definitely a place that I would highly recommend. It's very hard to get into, but uh, yeah, that would be the place I would say. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So when things open back up for you guys, because you guys are still kind of on lockdown, right? Yeah. So right now, indoor dining is still locked down for us. Um, we are able to do patios. Um, most most businesses are still open, but yeah, indoor dining is still done. Obviously, and then obviously, like you know, big events and stuff like that's still done. But we're hoping that will that'll probably end by the end of the month. So a lot of you know, so crossing fingers. Uh, bucket list travel destination is South Africa. So I'd say I have three. It's Japan, South Africa, and probably Brazil. Um, and then I would say bucket list restaurant. Got it. Uh, this, I don't know. Um, that, that's not something that's really a big thing for me. I, it's just a really cool place. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe a really good pizza place in New York. Kind of fun. With uh, South Africa, Brazil, and Japan, is it is there specific cities or you just want to kind of explore like as much as you can in you know, a two-week time frame or something? South Africa was mostly because... Um, the town of Cape Town, uh, just outside that is Klein Constantia, or Constantia, which is a wine region, and it's considered some of the most beautiful vineyards in the world. Uh, Japan, mostly just because I think there would be such a culture shock. I mean, I've been to Vietnam and Thailand and the Philippines, but I think Japan would just be so cool. I think I, I love the idea of it being super organized, and um, I think the food would be mind-blowing, so it'd be something different. And then I just love heat, and I love warm weather, and I think the culture of uh, Brazil, I think, would blow me away. I think I would love it, so... Uh, What's the craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Uh, I was working at Earl's in Saskatoon. This is very easy. I was serving two girls and it was an old bread factory. And I had a rat fall on the table while I was talking to them. A dead one. Like out of the ceiling? You got it. So, so and it landed right on the table. And I was just like, I was like, I looked at the girls and I just, I grabbed the napkin and I just covered it and I grabbed it. And I was like, uh, and they just kind of looked at me like an awe. And it was a busy Thursday afternoon or whatever it was. The restaurant was packed and no, luckily no, not too many people saw it. And I was like, whatever you want today is on us and i didn't even ask my bosses i was like you are free to leave if you guys want to go and i just kind of explained to them that we're an old red factory and so these things happen but uh yeah not ideal but it was definitely one of the things where i was like this, this is kind of kind of shocked me i haven't heard that one before so that's definitely unique uh food or drink guilty pleasure is there anything that um you know if you're in the grocery store you, you know if you go down that aisle it's down there or is there any sort of place that's grab and go or something like that that you're just like and I, I know it's super unhealthy but i just like, i can't stay away yeah i mean if anybody knows me i have two vices uh, well two two main vices uh chocolate is my main vice so if i go down the chocolate aisle uh chocolate covered almonds was a big big thing for me for a long time ago i, I, I had a really bad addiction and then cookies 
these are my like things. So if you go on my on the Tractor Boot website that I have on Medium, uh, it's Tractor Boot, and then my motto has always been "Life is short, eat a cookie." So um, cookies of chocolate chip cookies of any sort are definitely a weakness of mine. So, but I've been good. I'm trying to limit my sugar intake over the last couple of months here. So I haven't had I actually haven't had a cookie in two months. So I'm trying to eat healthier. Are you? Is it milk chocolate or dark chocolate? Always dark. Always dark. But I mean, I like them all. I, I actually like dark chocolate, and then I prefer, and then I like white chocolate. I'm not a really big fan of milk chocolate. I like white chocolate because it's very very creamy. Pick one of the following. So these are like ten wine docs, ten wine movies uh, that I was able to kind of track down or whatever. So pick one of the following you'd recommend people to to watch. So you have Psalm One, Psalm Two, Psalm Three, Sour Grapes, Decanted, Blood into Wine, Bottle Shock, A Good Year, Uncorked, or Sideways. It's easy. Sideways. Sideways. I mean, I've, I've seen all of those and sideways. I mean, the first song is really good. Um, it's if you really want to learn about wine and how crazy these guys can be and guys and girls can be when they get into it, that sphere and you want to go to that level, it's pretty riveting. Uh, but sideways is just amazing. It's funny. It's, uh, it's a really human story. Um, it's a great way to kind of like get a sense of what the wine culture is. I visited that area of Napa and Sonoma in 2016. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. And then it's just, it's, 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 it's a great, great, great movie to watch. And uh, yeah, if you like a little bit of wine, they, the funny thing about that one, and this is, I think the Joe running joke about that movie that a lot of people don't realize is that throughout the movie, Miles, the main character says that he does at one night when they're going to have dinner, he says, I'm not going to drink any Merlot. He just, he's not a big Merlot guy. He's a Pinot Noir guy. But what's funny is that at the end, he, he has a bottle of 1961 Cheval Blanc. Well, what's ironic about that is Cheval Blanc is a Merlot-dominated grape from the right bank in Bordeaux. And so that's the running joke, I think, that they played on people. And so he talks about how he hates Merlot, but that his favorite bottle of wine that he has in his collection is a bottle of Merlot. So I think there's, I think, that, I think that's always kind of a funny thing. They always said that that like when that movie came out, it just decimated like the Merlot industry. That's always the thing I've heard, but I don't know if it's true or not. Did Pinot Noir sales went up almost forty percent overnight, and Merlot sales dropped precipitously. So it, it definitely had a huge effect on uh, people's palates and what they were gravitated towards. And that shows you something. People just at that time, people didn't really know too much about wine. So, but don't shoot young when you drink wine. Wine recommendations: so a bottle twenty dollars and under, fifty dollars and under, hundred dollars and under, and over a hundred. I mean, uh, twenty dollars and under, it's easy. I mean, I would go uh, get something like a Vino Verde from. Uh, you know, get something like that from uh, Portugal. And then, you know, it's really crisp, light, white, refreshing. You can usually find a nice Vino Verde for like $12, $15. Um, or go Spanish. Spanish wine is always, they have the, they have really strong um, regulations and, and rules. And uh, they have really good aging laws. And you can get really good value if you get something from Ria, uh, uh, Rio, uh, Rioja, Rivera del Duero, Toro. Um, you know, so Spain is usually where I go if you want great value. In the $30 range, I mean, 30 in the $50 range, I always say I'm French. I love French wine. French wine is always my favorite. So I'd always say go to the Loire Valley. You know, look for a great, uh, a good, a good, you can get a delicious Vouvray or you can get a great Muscadet, um, very refreshing styles of wine. Um, Sancerre Rouge is absolutely delicious. You know, Sancerre is known for Sauvignon Blanc. It's, but the Sancerre Rouge is fantastic. It's Pinot Noir, very light, a little bit more acidity. And then in the $100 range and above, I go bubbles always. Go, go get champagne, go get, go get yourself a bottle of uh, something like that. And, you know, there's a lot of great grower champagnes out there as well. So you can definitely find that. And then, you know, if I'm, in, I'm being adventurous, um, you know, Pinot Noir from the central Otago region, or you can get me like a nice, you know, uh, you know, uh, a nice Mosul, Mosul Riesling. 
I don't know if you're an Anthony Bourdain fan. I was. Um, not everybody is. But is if you are an Anthony Bourdain fan, is there an episode, moment, scene that stands out to you the most that you remember? Or if you weren't, was there another kind of culinary personality, whether it was a chef on TV, on the Food Network, or, or whatever, that, uh, that you did kind of gravitate towards? Uh, yeah, I was never an Anthony Bourdain guy. Um, sadly, I never really, I've never watched any of his shows. Um, I, I read Kitchen, Kitchen Confidential after he passed away. Um, and it was, it's a great book. Definitely highly recommend it. It's very sad that he died a couple years ago. Um, no, I was always a Gordon Ramsay guy. Gordon Ramsay was the guy I always kind of, yeah, I like Gordon Ramsay. I liked, I liked, I gravitated towards him. I, I not, I'm not to bemoan your country, but I'm not a really big fan of all the work he does in the United States. I'm not a big fan of like Kitchen Nightmares or Hell's Kitchen. Those are the shows that I'm not really a big fan of. Yeah, they're not very good. Uh, but his stuff that he does in the UK on Channel 4 is fantastic. Uh, he had a show called The F Word for a long time, which was really, really great. And then even his original Kitchen Nightmares, his Ramsey's Kitchen Nightmares from the UK are fantastic. Um, they're more personal, less polished. Um, you get more of kind of the actual you know, thing. And then he's got he's got a great masterclass uh, that he has. And he's got some great kitchen classes that he teaches on YouTube that you can watch anytime. And he's, you know, that's the Gordon that I like. He's one of the most accomplished chefs ever and he's really passionate you know and, and when you see him in those environments that's the guy that i like but this this hothead that they tried this hothead personality that he plays up in the stuff in the united states i'm not really a big fan of that but his earlier stuff is way better have you emailed his pr team yet to see if he'll come on the podcast no <laughs> if he opens a restaurant in vancouver i definitely will where can people find you social media website all that stuff plug away uh, yeah, you can find me on scoutmagazine.ca uh, here in Vancouver. I'm one of the contributing writers and uh, obviously they sponsor my podcast, Tracking Food. Uh, you can find all my work on our my hosting site, uh, midrangevancouver.com. Um, you can find my work, my writing there and all my podcast stuff as well. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm, I'm at grandma. My, mom, my last name is Ma and I'm not Chinese, but I got the last name through my mom's first marriage. And my middle name is Graham. And you say Graham and Ma together, what does it sound like? It sounds like Grandma. So that's uh, at Grandma. So if you want to find me on Instagram, you can find me there. So, uh, it's a running joke with one of my, my buddy Todd. He's like, would it be kind of cool if your middle name was Graham? Then I could call you Grandma. And I'm like, actually, it is Graham. And he's like, what? I've known you for six years that I didn't know this? So uh, yeah, so that's, that's where that comes from. But yeah, th- those are the places where you can find me. And uh, yeah, check it out. Well, yeah, appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. You know, definitely different perspective. Vancouver's an awesome city. Can't wait to come back uh, and, and hit up a bunch of different restaurants. I want to do like, I want to do like Vancouver for like four days and then like Seattle and Portland, like all just like in a row. That's kind of whenever the borders and stuff open back up, but uh, hopefully be able to do that sooner than later. But yeah, really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's awesome. Um, and uh, we'll definitely stay in touch and definitely look forward to all the guests that you get on your podcast uh, that I get to listen to and experience Vancouver through just through your podcast until I get to get back there again. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, of course. Same thing. Same thing to you. Thank you for having me on, by the way. It's, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure. And uh, yeah, no, I, I highly urge you to hit up uh, Portland, Seattle, love those cities. Really, really fun. And uh, yeah, hopefully I'll, maybe I'll get to meet you out here in Vancouver sometime soon. Well, yeah, stay safe. Uh, hopefully you guys get to reopen soon and uh, we'll stay in touch and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Definitely a fan. All right. Thank you. That's it. That's my conversation with Jamie Ma. Thanks again to Jamie for coming on the podcast. Uh, it was really awesome to you know be able to sit down and, and talk with somebody, like I said, who's a fellow podcaster and, and somebody who's kind of 
paved a, a bit of a trail for me to kind of follow in their footsteps and, and definitely giving me some great ideas too as well on kind of different stuff that they're doing. So again, make sure you follow them on Instagram at Grandma and also follow Track and Food Podcast on there too as well. Uh, Scout Magazine and Midrange too or both have uh, their own Instagram accounts and visit the Midrange website to see everything that's going on in Vancouver. But you know, I didn't personally go to the Pacific Rim Lounge. Uh, we went to Botanist, which is in that same hotel. But the lounge is really cool. They have live music all the time. So if you're ever in Vancouver and you're looking for a spot to kind of grab a drink, I would definitely recommend stopping in there. You know, I walked by it. I didn't stop in there myself, but it looked pretty awesome and definitely a place that I would check out on a future visit. So um, definitely, you know, stop in there and see if Jamie's working and, you know, give him a shout, say hi. But uh, yeah, really appreciate him coming on the podcast. Um, you know, like I said, we're doing a, a few different things, you know, here with guests and stuff like that. We have some sommeliers and we're going to have, you know, Jamie's kind of like a journalist too as well. So he's got that component and, and we're expanding kind of different people within kind of the restaurant and food and beverage kind of industry and hospitality industry too as well. So we got some more stuff coming up, uh, more interviews, which, you know, on the chefs and guests uh, podcast here. So uh, really excited for those to come out. You know, next week is actually going to be another sommelier, but it's it's just different. He's somebody who maybe you you haven't heard of. Maybe you have if if you really follow kind of the wine industry. But he's just somebody who is super sharp and super just put together with a vision, and it's really impressive. And if you think that you know you're like, oh, I've accomplished a lot in my life, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna listen to that podcast and be like, Jesus Christ, like this guy is just doing stuff that I would never even have kind of thought of. So, and he definitely has a a different perspective on kind of the wine industry and making, you know, his lane and what he's doing. It's it's really cool to to sit down with him. So uh, that'll be coming out next week. But yeah, definitely check out all the past episodes. We had uh, executive chef Olivia Hammond. Uh, that podcast came out last week. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, make sure to go back, check that out. That's, she's the first woman chef that we've had on the podcast. So it was definitely cool to get that perspective. Week before that was advanced sommelier Greg Stokes of Accent and Veritas talking about, you know, the the wine shop that he's going to open and just get into the wine industry and everything that goes into with trying to become a master song essentially too as well. So make sure you check those out. All the past episodes too are up there. If you just go to the website, go to the podcast, um, just on the drop down there, chefs and guests, there's a running list of everybody we've had on. So um, definitely check those out. Those are, you know, super proud of those. Anybody who agrees to come on, it's been awesome to be able to talk to. You never know who, you know, is going to say yes. You're always kind of surprised that people do say yes. And, and we're definitely kind of building a little bit of a, you know, pretty awesome collection of interviews and stuff that we've been able to, to do with different people from not only Columbus, but, you know, Vancouver and Denver with Alex Seidel. And, and we got some other, you know, places uh, coming up too as well. So super excited about everything that's to come with that. Definitely super focused on that and want to keep bringing those out. You know, originally we tried to, we're thinking like one every two weeks, you know, with Andrew doing the editing and everything too as well. We might be able to kind of, if we can book people, you know, consistently be able to kind of put them out almost every week uh, would be a pretty awesome goal. You know, we wanted to do 26 uh, this year, but I think we can, you know, get past that. And people really seem to love them. So uh, I love doing them. So definitely want to continue doing that. But make sure you check out Parts Now Known. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, you know, we're re-watching Parts Unknown. Uh, me and Ben, my co-host, in order um, from basically episode one through 
you know, season 11 episode, I don't know what it's like six or seven. I think there are an episode 11, the last season. So we're going through those. Uh, we're in the middle of season five. So if you haven't listened to those, check those out. We got a ranking. Uh, we got individual rankings on our favorite episodes. Uh, we've done about like 36, 37, somewhere in there. So, you know, give those a listen. Some are awesome. Uh, some episodes we just don't love and wind up talking about, you know, other stuff. It just kind of depends. So check those out if you're, you know, Anthony Bourdain fan or if you're looking for some content, something to listen to or whatever. We try and keep at least, you know, most of it on topic with the episode and relating to it. But sometimes we just kind of go off the rails. It just kind of depends. So I know there's a lot of kind of those style podcasts out there. But uh, if you're interested in, you know, kind of what we're doing here, um, you know, definitely would recommend checking it out. And then uh, restaurant reviews is still coming out with those on Mondays. So try and keep those, you know, under a half hour for everybody. But just kind of recapping my experience going to a restaurant or if I had already been to that restaurant and did a podcast on them, if they came out with a new menu and we went back, kind of what our experience was and breaking down the courses and everything like that, all the different dishes that we've had. Uh, on the website, there has been some updates, new logo. So um, shout out to Jack who did the the logo design for us, um, just knocked it out of the park pretty much on the first try, just hit it just exactly what we wanted you know, minimalist style, but, you know, you kind of get it as soon as you see it too as well and different components in the color scheme and just crushed it. So super happy with that, super excited with everything we were, you know, able to do with, you know, kind of the, the logo and everything now too as well. But that's up on the website. You'll notice there's some new sections too as well. You got the Psalm section, chef's section, obviously for all the chef bios and everything. If you go into the chef section, some of those are going to be updated. If we've done a podcast with them or done a restaurant review on the restaurant that they work at, we have all the courses compiled underneath that. So you can click on them and they'll expand larger, but all those courses in kind of that little box, those are all associated with the podcast. Um, so if you're looking for a breakdown of different dishes, you know, that dish looks interesting, want to know more about it, click on the little button. That'll take you to the Apple feed for the podcast, take you right to the episode. So you know exactly what episode it is. You can listen to it through your web browser or your phone or whatever. Or if you're using an Apple phone, it'll take you to Apple Podcasts take you right to the episode. Uh, make sure you hit the follow button too as well. So, you know, subscribe or follow to the podcast too when you do that, uh, if you haven't already, but it'll take you right to the direct episode that you're looking for. And you can listen to that episode and, you know, hear me talk about the different courses and, and explain that dish, um, you know, in detail and everything like that too. So going to still be doing those, but those are all updated. So full update, you know, has been completed on the website. So Took um, a couple days longer than I wanted to, but there's just a lot of, uh, just had to go through and do a lot of kind of manual stuff. So took a took a second to get it done, but it's all updated. Super happy with it. I think it's a lot easier for people to use now too as well. Should load faster too, because there's not as many different boxes and stuff like that. So you'll also see a new section, uh, industry. Uh, that is going to be for everybody who comes on the podcast who is not a chef or a psalm. So if it's a restaurant owner, a food critic, a bartender, a beverage director, something that falls out of the scope of sommelier and chef, their profile is going to go over there. So you'll see that slowly, you know, accumulating different people as these uh, chefs and guest podcasts come out with uh, different industry workers and everything too, as well. So super excited about the kind of diverse group um, that we got coming up. Uh, and we're just going to keep uh, seeing if people want to come on the podcast and talk and just keep adding people and super happy with everything. Make sure you rate, review, subscribe, keep spreading the word, uh, telling all your friends about it, tell them to you know, check us out, start with the chefs and guests episode and, and work their way through there first is what I would recommend to everybody. But appreciate everybody listening. Questions, comments, feedback, send those through the website still. That's still up there. But uh, make sure you're following us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. 
Follow us on Twitter and Facebook too as well, uh, but we mainly do everything through Instagram, so that's kind of where you want to follow us. We recommend checking out the website once a week. There's always something new going up um, now that it's finished with kind of a little bit of a refresh. And um, yeah, listen to the back catalog of the podcast. Definitely recommend starting with chefs and guests first. And um, like I said, appreciate everybody up to now, and we will talk to you guys next week.